the premise of aversion conditioning is really um, reestablishing or establishing healthy boundaries between wildlife and humans. This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bearers. As we press through these colder months of the winter, I'm seeing more and more questions about coyotes pop up on social media and traditional media. Of course, this is often in response to bad memes or misinformation designed to frighten people rather than educate them. Check out thefurbears.com for some of the articles we've written to try and respond to these concerns. But it's also an opportunity to talk about aversion conditioning, commonly referred to as hazing, and the role it can play in mitigating and ending human conflict with coyotes. Lauren Van Patter, a Queen's University PhD candidate, and my good friend Leslie Sampson of Coyote Watch Canada work together to pen a paper that outlines the scientific literature on aversion conditioning, as well as the experiences of the Coyote Watch Canada Canid Response Team. Titled, Advancing Best Practices for Aversion Conditioning to Mitigate Human-Coyote Conflicts in Urban Areas, and published openly in the journal Human-Wildlife Interactions, the paper also prompted an outstanding essay on theconversation.com. Lauren and Leslie joined Defender Radio to talk about the importance of this paper, why we need to understand what is and isn't proper aversion conditioning, and how we can coexist with our essential wild neighbors. Let's talk about why this project happened. So we're, we're looking at both the study and the conversation article that was written to kind of help promote it. Leslie, could you talk about why we needed to ask the questions asked within this study? Sure. Uh, first of all, thanks so much for having me on behalf of Coyote Watch Canada and my friend and colleague, Lauren Van Patter. Really appreciate the opportunity to be able to discuss and go through thoughtfully the um, research that we did uh, publish. So there was a lot of discussion, whether in media or um, in the science community, uh, that talked a lot about hazing and the efficiency or um, failure of that kind of response to wildlife, in particular coyotes. So. Uh, when the opportunity arose um, to work with uh, Lauren, as this is going towards her uh, PhD, we just couldn't turn it down because it is a little bit difficult when you're doing field research uh, about a topic like humane hazing or aversion conditioning because the environment influences vary from uh, moment to moment and family to family, situation to situation. So I think uh, we were just really pleased at the opportunity to synthesize and pull in the hardcore methodology and field application that not only is being uh, done by our Canaan response team for Coyote Watch Canada, but also um, in the vein of rigorous scientific research. And that's, you know, where uh, Lauren Van Patter came into it. 
Yeah, and one of the things, and I'll, I'll just, I'm going to jump in and out of the study a couple of times, but something that's interesting, one of the tables referenced is uh, when you searched uh, in part of the, the literature review as part of the study, looking for efforts or studies revolving around hazing, deterrent, repellent, haze, harass, et cetera, there's several different ways of that being listed. The date range was since 2000, and you've got well in excess of 10,000 results, but you only ended up using maybe, what, two dozen papers from that, which I found interesting. And that really speaks to the way these terms are being used very broadly. Um, I think other examples where we see this are terms like food condition and habituated in wildlife management. Um, they, they, they don't have a standard meaning. They don't have an obvious, this is what we're talking about. Uh, Lauren, as a researcher, is that part of the, the reason you ask a question like this like what what is aversion conditioning or hazing do we have a scientific basis for it yeah well i think that's a really good uh good question and part of um i guess our collaboration or my collaboration with coyote watch canada in, in developing this article um was you know, through my work with them and the field experience I was able to gain, sort of understanding the complexity of how these situations emerge or unfold on the ground. And that when you look at the literature, a lot of that isn't captured. We miss out on that, um, on that complexity. And there's a lot of questions around how we should be implementing. What exactly do we mean when we talk about habituation or certain coyote behaviors or particular interventions? So a lot of what we were trying to do with this article was to look at the literature, identify the gaps or these amb ambiguities, and then use Coyote Watch Canada's Canada Response Team experience to sort of speak to that and provide some clarity around, um, well, what we saw was some um, issues around the language that was used or the assumptions underlied uh, using hazing to manage wildlife like coyotes. Um, so yeah, a lot of that was designed to sort of speak to these questions. Um, yeah, particularly around challenge situation. Yeah, it's something I, I found interesting, and Leslie and I have talked about this at great length over the, the many years we've now known each other, is everyone's perception of what happened uh, particularly when it comes to hazing and stuff. And I remember one meeting we were at, Leslie, and uh, a resident was saying, well, I was waving my arms and shouting at this coyote and they just wouldn't leave. Therefore, this hazing nonsense doesn't work. And upon further questioning, we found out that she was probably 100 yards away from the coyote who was on the edge of a forest and she was in the street. Um, and I, I always remember that anecdote because I, for me, this is why a question like this or the questions asked in this study need to be asked and explored because that anecdote for that individual is now what hazing means. It's this silly thing I do that doesn't make a difference. But when we apply the context of, well, what were you doing? When was it? How was it? Et cetera. All of a sudden it's, well, no, she wasn't actually doing any of the things we said you should do. Um, so in terms then of going through a literature review, and I'd like to get back into some of those anecdotes and stuff after, uh, how do you go through this process then, I guess, Lauren? How do you sort of say, this is what we're talking about. This is what we want to find out. So here's the general question. What steps do you take to go through uh, and create this study and the ultimate results and considerations? 
Yeah, so there were sort of two steps to this. Um, and the first was this background literature review. Um, so it was really a, a qualitative review of the uh, scientific literature, you know, published in peer reviewed journals and conference proceedings, as well as some of the gray literature, like best practices that have come out of communities or guidelines out of communities like the city of Chicago. Um, and so it was identifying those documents that were really speaking to what we were hoping to um, explore, how people have been implementing hazing or aversion conditioning, specifically in the context of urban coyote management. Um, although a few studies did look at rural uh, contexts as well. Um, and then it was uh, primarily identifying the main sort of themes and considerations, as well as gaps or limitations or questions to be addressed. Um, so I, you know, was using some software to code this literature, and then I generated a document with this background um, that was shared with the Coyote Watch Canada Canada response team. And then we organized a workshop. And so over the course of a full day workshop, we went through the literature together, discussed the gaps, um, and everyone was able to share their own experiences. And we came up with sort of a synthesis of uh, areas where the experiences of the team did or did not align with what was uh, in the literature and um, some ways that we felt that uh, the conversation could be brought forward in terms of more specific aims and, and definitions. So that was sort of the broad process. And then the findings from the workshop uh, ended up being synthesized into this paper. And it's it sounds like an exceptionally complex way. I, to me, it kind of sounds like you just explained how to build a car, to be totally honest. Um, and I understand that there is now a car and that those are all the parts that were there. Um, exactly how that came together remains a bit of a mystery to me, but that's fun. Leslie, what was it like for you to kind of be I, I, this is something you have been working on much of your life. What was it like for you to kind of sit down and help and be a part of this study to showcase what coyote or canid response teams are, your literature, um, and how you have evaluated the efforts of hazing and whatnot over the years. Yeah, it, it was just uh, an amazing, as I you know mentioned in the beginning, it was uh, what they say a match made in heaven because, mm. you know, here we have field tested methodology that's been deployed over and over um, with you know, consistent, uh, positive, successful results, but putting that then into a, um, a scientific document and being able to work uh, with the caliber of uh, researcher as Lauren is, it was just outstanding. And, um, you know, I, I was so grateful to have the opportunity to develop and provide a document that for, you know, whether you're a, a biologist, a researcher, a city official, a government agency, anybody that would be involved at any level with uh, wildlife response and with the emphasis and focus on non-lethal methodology, that this uh, research paper would be such a in integral aspect in um, you know developing and implementing and providing a foundation for all of that. So you know it's one thing to say that yes we use this methodology and it absolutely works, 
it's how do we get to that point? And it is multi-layered and complex. And, you know, having that workshop and then uh, Lauren and I going through after um, language was a big focus because a lot of the terminology is so ambiguous. It always is around coyotes to begin with. And then when you want to, you know, interject that into a uh, scientific paper, we really, we really uh, pulled apart and deconstructed and reevaluated the language and what would be the most thoughtful language in, you know, in presenting it uh, as a publication. So um, it was, yeah, I mean, it was a, a labor of love. It was uh, a long, a long haul, but, you know, when you're looking at over 35 years of uh, experience between, you know, myself and the other canid response teams, it's really a, a joy to be able to put that into uh, a publication. And I'm going to ask, and uh, perhaps this is best suited for Lauren, um, this is a question that's going to come up, is Coyote Watch Canada wants people to coexist with coyotes. That is very much the mandate of the organization. Does that therefore skew your questions, your results, and the ensuing policy uh, discussions? Or is there systems in place through this science, through this study, to prevent that from becoming an issue? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I think it really, I think different people would have a different um, different thoughts about that. But it really depends on your understanding of what science is as a practice or as a discipline. Um, and so I know for, for a lot of sort of mainstream natural science, there is this ideal of objectivity that we're all supposed to be objective um, observers sort of investigating the world and hypothesis testing. Uh, but I'm, I am a mixed methods, largely social scientist. And my understanding is a bit different that everybody approaches all the questions that we ask in our lives uh, through a particular lens or with particular understandings or values or priorities. And the more open we can be about these and how they influence the questions we ask and the assumptions we make and the findings that we come to, um, I think that's a more honest way of doing science. So to me, there's nothing at all incongruous about somebody saying I prioritize, you know, the lives of animals, I value other beings, I want to promote coexistence. And also, I'm going to implement a rigorous methodology to try to understand how best to do that. Um, so I, I don't think it's problematic at all. And I think, um, you know, sh sure, it's, it's an, an assumption of the paper that we want to work towards coexistence and non-lethal wildlife management, and that that should be a priority for all of us in our interactions with wildlife. Well said. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely, that can yeah. be challenged. Uh, Leslie, did you have any thoughts on that? And again, I know <laughs> these are conversations that Leslie and I have late into the night sometimes about this kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, look, um, everything that we do, we welcome the challenge, mm -hmm. whether it's from academia or uh, citizens alike. So uh, if if a method is not working, uh, that that is our goal and our aim to improve on that methodology for let's use, you know, inversion conditioning, for example. 
So, but if it's working, it absolutely does deserve and need to be brought to the forefront. And one of the things that, you know, was very clear, um, we did not embark in this research partnership under the guise of, well, you know, we want to see this result. We were open and, and welcoming whatever the data, whatever the field uh, experiential uh, observations, whatever they yielded, that's what the results would be. So, you know, uh, that is why, you know, I'm, I'm quite proud and uh, pleased with the results of the paper because it put our methods to the test and with success and being able to repeat the same methodology over and over. And I think Lauren could speak to that in that uh, all that was the big challenge with aversion conditioning or hazing in, in layman's terms, the hazing, because you know, if you know that a situation is arising, we also worked within a very, very strict code of ethics, not only from uh, Lawrence University through that um, academic framing, but also through our organization. And so we were very clear on what the ethical ramifications would be. So we were not gonna step aside if we saw that there was a, a situation where aversion conditioning through assessment and field observation and you know historical information about uh, a hotspot, we were going to act on that. And that was an interesting process. Lauren and I had many, many discussions about that. And you know, how does this fit into the framing of science and research and her being the scientist and myself being community scientists. So it, it's, it was a really, uh, I think it was, um, actually, uh, you know, considering our circumstances and the environments that we worked in, I think Lauren, um, you know, I'd like to hear her, her uh, thought process on that, but I think we were able to accomplish uh, uh, amazing results. I, I certainly agree. The, the results are very interesting. And I, I thought maybe just to, to guide this a little, the two points on the results, I, I'm very curious about off the top, or three, I should say. One is the terminology found through Google Scholar. Um, and again, the number of results yielded versus the number of papers ultimately included, if we could really kind of look at that, as well as um, in terms of reviewing methodology, there are things that you found do work, but things you found have problems as well. And I'd really like to dig into some of those because I think there are currently a lot of ideas being floated around North America and elsewhere in the world in, in regard to aversion conditioning of various types. Um, and there's a couple of, of you know, you, you keep mentioning uh, the concepts uh, throughout this of it being humane aversion conditioning. So I'd like to hear more on that. And then ultimately, uh, what did you find does work and why? So really broad question. Just explain all of it. You get 30 seconds. Let's go. Lord, I'll, I'll, uh, you want to take the lead on this and then I'll step in at the end. Okay. I'm sorry on which of the three questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I make it I easy. I, I ask three very broad questions. <laughs> yeah. Three very broad questions. Just answer anything does. No. Um, well, first, let's talk more about the Google Scholar part of it. I do find that very compelling that there were so many results, but so few papers actually then included. Um, 
what kind of happens from that? How does how do we go from tens of thousands down to only again eyeballing it two dozen? Yeah. Um, so uh, so basically, uh, in a literature review, uh, one of the main decision points is going to be your exclusion criteria and your inclusion criteria. Uh, so what is actually relevant to the question uh, under study? and what um, is maybe seen as extraneous or not really a core part of what you're looking at. So for our, um, um, for example, one of the exclusion criterias were that it was about other wildlife, not about coyotes. Mm. So we decided we were only going to look at coyotes. So a lot of these, even if you include coyote in the search term, it could be about a different species, but somewhere in the paper they mention the word coyote. So it comes up, but it's really about bears or about, you know, some other animal. Um, and another one was that a lot of the searches to do with aversion, uh, conditioning or deterrence had to do with uh, managing uh, predation in rural settings. And a lot of them had to do with uh, something called taste aversion conditioning, whereas you're putting like lithium or bone oil or something like that um, to try to de develop a negative association mm. between the coyote or the predator and the animal that they might try to prey on. Um, so anyway, that was not what we meant by aversion conditioning or hazing. So anything to do with that, we didn't look at. So there just ended up being, um, you know, those sorts of papers that weren't really speaking to what we were uh, looking at, but used some of the same language. It's fascinating that it's it's mentioned so many times, but in such different ways. Um, and I want to talk about the humane parts. Uh, Leslie, I think you want to jump in on that. There's concern for we have to use humane methods. And I guess there, there is a bit of an inherent contradiction in that because aversion conditioning is doing something to cause enough discomfort or enough... Uh, you know, I don't like this-ness uh, to cause the animal to stop doing what they're doing or go away. But what did we find with coyotes and why is humane being, why is that such an important part of this? Well, I just, I kind of want to touch a little bit on your first uh, statement about, you know, that it's an unpleasant or a negative experience for the coyote. First of all, the premise of aversion conditioning is really um, reestablishing or establishing healthy boundaries between wildlife and humans. And so, um, you know, we don't have to elicit a painful experience for a coyote to understand that them coming into a backyard because uh, there's a pile of food there is an appropriate uh, response. And we kind of we say that in layman's terms, there's some bad manners being uh, developed there. So if we are looking at reshaping, reprogramming, however, you know, the listeners would best relate to that, it's not that we're doing things that are physically hurting a coyote, which because of course we're not, it's re-establishing or establishing those really appropriate, healthy boundaries. And that's not to say, you know, and this is one thing that, uh, you know, in the, in the deployment of our methods and also throughout the research and the field work, you know, some coyotes have different food educations. And when food is the driver for 
a proximity tolerance to a location or humans, could be a backyard, could be a park, could be a parking lot, picnic table. Um, when, when the food is part of that environment, so has this animal been fed 50 times, maybe five times, and maybe this one coyote was fed once and learned quickly you know, to visit that same location again. And so within the framing of aversion conditioning, we, we did identify during the aversion conditioning workshop, we had to be very, very clear, and, that's, and we did this in the paper, that we're looking at being adaptable, and I'm talking from the individuals that are deploying the aversion conditioning, you have to be able to do on-site, in-the-moment assessment. You have to be creative, adaptable, and ready within that moment to move up uh, maybe to the next step, to a higher intensity. And so let's say, for example, you know, we've removed food. This uh, same coyote is uh, visiting a location. We're going to use one of the most obvious methods, which could be uh, the green bag method, which is snapping and fill, filling the bag with air and snapping it using your voice and using a strong presence physically. But if, say, for example, that coyote doesn't respond in that moment, well, it, it, it escalates. We escalate that to the next. So one of the questions, which was really, uh, Lauren and I thought it was a fabulous question in the literature review by the research team that decides whether your paper is going to be published or not. The question was, well, what if they get used to? No, in our, in our definition and application of aversion conditioning, there is not going to be an opportunity for a coyote to get used to one methodology because it's not just one methodology. It is a, uh, a tools, it's uh, multiple tools in the toolkit which involves actions and gestures um, that, you know, a person uh, that's involved in, you know, delivering the version conditioning would be pulling out and utilizing. And it could be the umbrella. Some, some coyotes will respond instantly to just the presence of a body that's very assertive. And, you know, a lot of times we'll hear the officers that we do the training for, they'll say, gosh, you know, they see our, our, um, uniform it's like and they take off and no it's your presence too the body language and the way that you know because a lot of these officers are working with dogs and different wildlife species so they have um, a presence and an energy about them and coyotes can respond very well to that and did i cover that pretty good lord <laughs> a <Yeah>. long-winded answer <laughs> well the, the third question really too is what did we learn, um, I think, in regard to what will work and what won't work? And uh, the, the garbage bag method you're talking about is one I've heard across the board for multiple species. Uh, I've personally never needed to use it. Every wildlife encounter I've had ends with the wildlife running away. Uh, and I often remind people that it's very much like doing the opposite of what you do when you want a dog to be closer to you. Um, but... 
what are some of the things I think maybe off the top of that do work in addition to the garbage bag um, and what came as a result of this? And then what are some of the things being done that we should be actively avoiding at this point? Well, I think um, if, I, if I can just start, Leslie, I think that one of the um, big things that we talk about in our paper is that sometimes aversion conditioning is assessed as a lone measure. So people are just looking at how Coyote is responding to, you know, haze, the hazing attempt, how, whatever method is used. Um, but consideration of the broader context, the food resources available, that sort of thing aren't being addressed. And so we write in our paper that any aversion conditioning program should be implemented as part of a broader uh, wildlife coexistence framework in a community. Um, and so, you know, that's something that Leslie can speak more to in terms of Coyote Watch Canada's coexistence framework. Um, but I think it's important to note that you know, if we're going to be talking about whether it's a successful uh, tool or not, then we need to be looking at it in the context of everything else that's going on. Um, most importantly, food resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Lauren, I, Michael, I'm going to jump in there because she, yeah, you summarize that really well. I think too, um, you know, we're using the word hazing within our, you know, discussion today, but we really are trying to move away from that term. It is a pretty generic term and it is ambiguous now uh, across really North America. Um, and in the nineties, when I started working with uh, coyotes and communities, I called what I was doing at that time, aversion conditioning. And then, you know, fast forward into two thousands, and the terminology hazing, you know, surfaced and it became like a generic go-to, yeah, apply hazing. You gotta haze the coyote, yeah, if you see it, you haze it. And there's so much more to um, creating coexistence than that. And I think when we expect a community to do that without providing critical uh, uh, tools and critical discussions about what, what exactly is happening, why is it happening, who's doing investigations, um, are, you know, are we engaging first responders like Animal Control, Animal Service, SPCA, law enforcement. We've got to pull everybody together from all these diverse, crazy, incredible expert backgrounds or maybe limited experience with wildlife and you're bringing them to a common the I, I say the heart of the matter and so everybody's looking at coyotes through a different lens but we've got to broaden that lens to the greater good and help folks navigate all of this information that's out there and I you know I I feel confident that this paper has provided that opportunity. One thing I will say, and I, I'm hoping Lauren will add to this, we do not support the use of clay bullets or anything like that when it comes to reshaping coyote behavior. One of the things that is evident in the years that I've been working with coyotes to um, encourage them to move out of an area, uh, 
one thing is for sure that the human component is essential. We are the ones that rescript for these animals what is appropriate and what's not. When you're firing something from yards and yards away, and then you couple that with the use of dogs, which is you know, uh, problematic in and of itself because dogs are considered another predator to coyotes. And there's just so many things that can go wrong in that kind of um, active, you know, encouragement of domestic dogs with coyotes. Um, you're, not, you're not teaching the coyote that there's like an avoidance for people or avoidance for dogs. What we're doing is actually encouraging coyotes to maybe, and you know, at this point, we're investigating, uh, you know, avenues and opportunities to do, to delve into some really uh, interesting creative research as far as uh, those methods go. But um, we can set coyotes and dogs up for failure because if a, a dog is used to flush out coyotes from a green space and then somebody fires off clay bullets, but all the coyote is seeing is the dog, they're not, they're not going to make an association between the human that's way over there firing off the gun with these clay bullets or whatever the uh, substrate they're using. They're going to be seeing the dog in that situation. And so there is uh, the potential for those coyotes to really be um, triggered by the next dog they see in the environment. And we know this from just domestic dog behavior, right? The history and the memory. I was just going to say, that's my dog, JJ, who many listeners are aware of from her click clacking around when I'm interviewing people. Um, she sees small dogs like Chihuahuas now and gets nervous and the reason for that is she lived with a small chihuahua who would nip at her all the time. And she wasn't allowed to do anything about it because she is significantly larger than a chihuahua. But what that's done is created a stress response for her. It's a trauma response that now when she sees a small dog, she has an association in her head of being attacked and gets nervous and stressed out. And she's always on leash. We live in an urban area. But the reality is, I don't necessarily know how she would react if one of those little dogs off leash ran up to her. Um, and I think if I take that knowledge, uh, this this very clear, obvious, traumatic response and consider, well, what happens if we teach dogs to harass coyotes that way or chase coyotes? And then coyotes just hanging out in their backyard, as coyotes do in the forest or wherever they are, and a little dog comes wandering off leash. How do we expect that coyote to react at that point? Uh, like these are questions that I think need to be asked and don't seem to be being asked as clearly as they could be as part of these conversations. Well, I'd like to add too to that. Um, the thing is, so for example, you have a situation where a dog was used to flush coyotes out of a bush area in their natural habitat. And the domestic dog is not natural in that landscape in, in terms of uh, wildlife, you know, uh, ecosystem there. And so the whole interaction takes place, the clay bullets hit, hit the target, the dog is there chasing, harassing, and who knows what else. And then a citizen comes along having zero knowledge 
of that experience for that coyote or zero knowledge of what transpired in that environment. And so you can see where it can become very uh, complicated and irresponsible because we can't, we can't expect, you know, residents that are going into an area. It's like, you know, somebody that's chronically feeding a coyote in a particular location. And then somebody new comes into the area and their dog's on a leash. They're doing, you know, everything that a, a guardian uh, would do appropriately for an animal that they care about. And then all of a sudden you have, you know, a situation where, you know, there's an encounter. And so it's really important to have history and look at, are we just, you know, trying to say that it's working? So if a coyote family leaves an area because they were blasted with um, clay bullets and harassed and chased by a dog, they leave their home range. Okay, where do those coyotes now go? So are they setting up in an area that probably isn't the best location for them, but especially if it's around, the, you know, um, pup rearing time. So then you could have a mother that's desperate looking for a new den uh, and chooses a, a den that is not suitable or safe for not only the young family, but, you know, uh, there could be increased encounters between domestic dog walk walkers and uh and the coyote family themselves. Yeah, I, th I think ultimately one of the things that comes out of this, uh, this research, as well as other research, as well as personal experience for many of us, is we don't know what will happen based on how we take action in an ecosystem at times. And that needs to be held in consideration for what are the potential consequences to the coyotes. And I believe that's that's explained well in this study. Um and really drives home the point that we need to learn to coexist. Something that's stated uh, uh, clearly in your article is not only is non-lethal intervention uh, always preferable to lethal control, uh, but they have the potential to be more sustainable and effective in the long term. Lethal coyote management has been the status quo for hundreds of years, and the evidence of its inadequacy in mitigating human-coyote conflict is increasingly dramatic. Lauren, as a scientist... Uh, you know, I, I'm a bit of a history nerd and I go and I look and I say, gee, maybe I shouldn't fight a two front war uh, after looking at this length of history where every time someone's done that, they've lost horribly. And then I go out and fight a two front war and complain about it. That's what it kind of feels like with some of the human coyote conflicts and people saying we need to kill coyotes. As a researcher, when you come across something like this, it, it, to me, there is a very clear historic record of coyote control failing uh, is is there another way of putting that are we not seeing it clearly as a researcher what's your take well i think it's um yeah i mean i, I think that we're in many ways well aware that the lethal management predator management has not been effective with coyotes in terms of you know decreasing their population or any of the sort of historic management goals we might have had um, and I think that we understand in urban areas increasingly that removing them, whether that's uh, through translocation or whether it's through lethal removal, if we're not 
be sort of addressing the source of the issue. Um, often it's food resources or people intentionally feeding, that sort of thing. There's always more to move into the area. So that's not going to work. Um, and so I think that they're, you know, part of this growing body of literature and practices around hazing um, or aversion conditioning and other approaches is an understanding that we need to be able to do something different than than the traditional approaches of just removing them. But I think that, uh, you know, there's there are still a lot of questions because of the complexity, as we've discussed, it's a hard thing to test. Um, it's a hard thing to test what is effective and what isn't um, because the environment is, is so complex and variable. Uh, yeah, so that, that's, I think, one of the scientific challenges is that anytime you're going to try to set up an experimental intervention to test what approaches do or don't work, um, you know, you, you can't really have a control setting because all settings are going to be different. Um, but I think doing, you know, our approach was there's an organization with many people who've been using this methodology for years. Uh, so let's use that as a set of best practices, um, what they have found effective and haven't through years of field tested experience. And that's a good starting point. Absolutely. Uh, I want to wrap up talking about management implications. You've got a section in the paper on management explanation or <clears throat> management implications. Um, and I'd like an explanation. Haha, -ha, that's where my brain was. Um, no, it, it's interesting, though, because uh, you bring up the point wildlife managers should not automatically conclude there are fixed states of advanced habituation that require lethal removal. I feel like that's very much at the core of a lot of conflict between animal welfare advocates, uh, uh, field researchers, community advocates, animal lovers, and the people who are making some of these decisions. Um, how do we continue to research this, I guess? Because that's really one of the big things from this study is saying we need to ask more questions, as you've just explained. What do we do next? I mean, we now know that some of these things do work, some of these things don't work, and we have a whole lot more questions. So how do we move forward? Uh, well, I'll just step in for <laughs> briefly. I think first and foremost, we have to really consider the language that we're using. If we're looking at improving and shifting that paradigm of lethal to non-lethal, it's imperative that we look at the language. And so starting right out of the chute, the term habituation is problematic on so many levels we could have a whole other you know uh chat about that but we we do reference and really uh hit home the concept and the assessment of food conditioning because even the most hardcore feeders in communities after over a year of feeding a family you know, in my, in, you know, early 2000s, I was able to work with that family and also engage the community. And we were successfully able to reshape and reignite those healthy instincts for the coyote family to avoid places. And I mean, they were fed by three different locations, you know, plates of food in a driveway, workers up the back, and then uh, folks, you know, that were 
inadvertently, unknowingly providing food. So I think we have to look at the language and put ourselves to the task of redefining or at least standing, you know, standing in the definitions that we choose to use. So the food conditioning, proximity tolerance, uh, you know, saying that wildlife is habituated, that is essentially the crack in the door that opens and says, you know what, time to remove these coyotes. Um, I think just building on that, um, a quick thought is another important direction to go is in really clearly defining what we mean by success and failure when it comes to this sort of methodology, because you do see that in certain um, you know, publications or accounts of uh, trying to, to use aversion conditioning. And, you know, in this instance, it failed. Well, well, what does that mean? What were all the contexts or contextual factors involved? Um, and in other cases, you know, where it was seen as a success, as Leslie pointed out earlier, does that just mean the family left the area? Because that's not a long-term success. Where did they go? What are their new interactions? Who are, is going to be the new family inevitably moving in? And what, how will that relationship be the same or different in the future? So a lot more nuance, I think, we need in our discussions of, you know, how we're interacting. Absolutely. And that's a very difficult problem, too, that we, we have tried to tackle numerous times and continue to try to tackle is how do we get people to understand that when your dog runs into the bush, the coyote's not picking a fight with them? Um, and how do we explain that, you know, coyotes don't understand that four foot chain link fence means you're not allowed to be here. Uh, it, it seems like this study in some ways also confirms that one of the biggest challenges is not necessarily educating the coyotes through humane aversion conditioning, but very much educating and empowering communities to coexist. Absolutely. And you know what, at any time when you're looking at relationships with uh, which we are absolutely an integral part of nature, um, our green spaces, those relationships, these are, these are concepts and ideas that now are in the, the realm of science. It takes a little bit of time for folks to catch up in the sense that, oh, you know what? I never thought of it that way. And, you know, we haven't really met communities that are jumping on board and wanting to lethally remove uh, coyotes, right? They are feeling that they don't have other options. And that was one of the other accomplishments uh, with, with the publication is that this is now evidenced a tool, something that uh, agencies can deliberate on and look at and feel comfortable doing because these are methodologies that were tested in the field and that speaks volumes you know i can say well yeah this works if i'm the only one that can do it <laughs> and everybody else is not successful then is that methodology a success i think it would be a real short-sighted conclusion to say that but if the methodology is uh 
able to be, uh, you know, redeployed over and over. And there's been thoughtful assessment of that particular situation. And that was the other thing that was emphasized in the paper too, May right, Lauren, is that we, we said like each family, each environment, there's so many variables that need to be pulled in to that snapshot of this uh, perceived or, or real um, human wildlife conflict, right? And it's more than a human world. We have to be able to uh, work within um, the unknowns and the knowns. And aversion conditioning does fit in there really well. Lauren, what other type of research are you working on currently or are you hoping to work on sort of propelling out of this study and this small area uh, of urban wildlife management? Yeah, so my broader research program, I'm an animal geographer. Um, so I sort of approach questions of human animal interactions, uh, human environment interactions through largely a cultural geographies lens, but interdisciplinarily. Um, so this was a really exciting opportunity for me to speak to a wildlife management audience through this article. Um, but some of my other work is, is more sort of cultural geographies focused, looking at how people think about and interact with um, animals in our communities, including coyotes. Um, and then also ways of rethinking urban theory uh, to understand the urban as a more than human landscape or pr a process um, you know, initiated by a whole bunch of different actors and only some of them are humans. Um, so that's sort of some broad areas that I'm looking at with my doctoral research. And then I'm interested in the future, uh, continuing to explore these questions around how to live with other animals, some of the ethics around that in urban areas, um, as well as as a researcher, how we can interact with other beings in our research in a way that's more collaborative and less about um, us studying animals as objects or that sort of thing. Uh, so those are a few of my areas of interest at the moment. To read the paper or the conversation.com essay, visit thefurbears.com or check out the links in this week's show notes. You can also find Coyote Watch Canada at coyotewatchcanada.com and across social media. I want to thank Lauren and Leslie for their time this week. Having these conversations about aversion conditioning and finding solutions is of the utmost importance as development and the climate crisis continue to impact the environments around us. I also want to thank all of you for tuning in and all you do to help the animals. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears reminding you to be kind and to stay informed and stay strong.